Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I am pleased to thank fellow saloners Mary P. and Samuel K., both of whom made donations to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with producing these podcasts. And I'd also like to thank Kate and Timothy, who became the 8th and ninth patrons of my new writing project, which you can learn more about at www.patreon.com slash all one word lowercase Lorenzo Haggerty with one G. And uh, I definitely want to thank you one and all for your great support. It means a lot to me. So today we will once again join Terrence McKenna in his August 1998 workshop for the staff at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. As we pick up in the middle of where we left off with Terrence last week, I should warn you that he is talking about the plot of a Greg Egan science fiction novel and not about a real medical procedure. <laughs> I'll start it right now and you will understand in a moment what I mean. ...years in the future, and they had one of these very, very expensive medical insurance policies where they're supposed to spare no effort to save you if something happens to you. And this guy was in a train wreck, and virtually nothing survived except his brain, which was completely intact. So they had a medical technology to grow him a new body. They just took some cells and clone them. But of course that gives you an infant, not a mature person. They then used enzyme technologies to force age this fetus. So it would take them two years to produce a, a, a body that could accept the transplant. So this was all fine. The insurance policy covered all of this. But there was a clause in the insurance policy which said that during the two years that the body was being grown and prepared for the transplant, the brain could be kept alive, should be kept alive, but that the insurance company had the right to choose uh, the cheapest method of keeping the brain alive, consistent with good medical practice. Well, the cheapest method of keeping the brain alive consistent with good medical practice was a direct implant into the body cavity of the other signatory on the insurance policy, who was this guy's wife. And so for two years, she carried the brain as an implant in her body cavity. And, you know, the psycho psychological changes and the feeling of obligation and guilt and the way in which this twisted these people's relationship is easily imagined. None of us have ever, you know, would your girlfriend do that for you? Would you do that for your girlfriend? And how would you think of uh, this person after you had been through that? That's not a very far-fetched thing. I mean, that's not as far-fetched, really, as... Well, it involves cloning and forced aging, uh, but uh, a, f 
full understanding of the physiological and psychological functioning of the human organism will make these kinds of things child's play. And then the, the moral questions, you know, is this a good thing? Should it be done? Our repugnance, immediate repugnance, or at least mine to this kind of thing, is, is a repugnance that would probably extend to many medical procedures that are routine today. It's just doctors don't rub the nose of the public in this stuff, but they do, you know, outlandish uh, procedures in the name of prolonging life and ameliorating pain. How we feel about this is, I think, probably one of the major issues of the next century will be, you know, how extraordinary should our efforts be to preserve and maintain life? And if we attain a perfect medical technology so that unless somebody's stone cold dead for six months, nothing can be done for them, then how are we to apply this? Is it immortality for the wealthy and prolonged life for the middle class and uh, the devil takes the hindmost for the suffering proletariat or how will all that be work, worked out what is the ethics of all that any comment on all of this or question is it all perfectly clear here what's going on yeah this is appalling stuff and uh and yet, you know, knowing human beings to be the creatures they are, uh, if, if there are livers walking around in the poor sections of third world cities worth $20,000 a pop, it's asking a great deal to not believe that criminal syndicates will prey on these people. I can remember m my shock disbelief it was a growing moment for me when I was in India when I learned that all these extremely dramatically deformed people who were begging from me that these had been healthy children whose poor parents had saved up the family savings so these people could be taken to these surgical clinics as children and deliberately deformed in order to give them a profession you know it's like here is my here is your mother and my gift to you you know blindness spinal deformity uh, so forth and so on so that you may now enter the begging union this is the other thing you may not understand about india these people begging on the street everybody is in the union you give somebody a dollar, that isn't their dollar. Under fear of death, they turn that dollar in at the end of the day and they are given a percentage of it and the rest is distributed to the other members of the begging union. So this is, you know, so counter to Western values that we, we don't know where to begin or who to blame or who to condemn on a deal uh, like that. So, and, and as Kathleen makes the point, we're part of the problem. This trade in organs would not exist 
if it weren't for people like you and I who have medical insurance policies that will pay for these outrageous uh, procedures and pay these incredible amounts of money. And the logical extrapolation of this is, in fact, a society where the rich live forever. And this, this can be done. I mean, it can't be done today, but in a way, we're experiencing it. I mean, if the average lifespan in Bangladesh is 33, and the average lifespan here in Big Sur is 78, you got to figure money and a clean food supply and access to medical procedures is what's making the difference. Yeah. But the quality of life, I'm, I'm speaking about the elderly and um, doctors who prolong uh, life for the elderly for religious reasons or whatever. Um, families uh, are willing to allow doctors to step in and prolong life when there is no quality of life left. And, and of course, this is, uh, you know, the doctors are getting richer, and the families feel that this is what God wants. Well, there's no natural ending. Yeah, in a sense, science has forced the hand of religion, yeah. because science the religious impulse care for the sick we talked about this last night this is a great moral obligation a great moral teaching we should feed the hungry clothe the naked bury the dead care for the sick but if caring for the sick means uh you know prolonging the agony of 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 dying people for purposes of money, it doesn't make any sense at all. People are afraid to touch this issue. It relates to abortion. It relates to what Dr. Kevorkian is doing. Because it's easy to say life in all circumstances should be preserved. The problem is that's an egghead, distanced, rational. You're not up to your elbows and guts when you make that statement, what really needs to be preserved is the quality of, of experience. And when the quality of experience sinks below a certain level, I don't think we're doing anybody a favor. Not the dying person, not their family, not the, the medical establishment is corrupted because it no longer knows what it's doing. We, But again, as you point out, we are so factionalized by religious beliefs and and other philosophical differences that we don't want to look this in the face you know we don't want to we don't want to kill people who don't want to die no matter how horrifying their circumstance is and so the thing is not being handled at all it's being it's being allowed to develop in extremely messy directions and we should all have a great concern I mean it may seem abstract this evening because we all sit here but you know 
You could drive out of here tomorrow and in a moment of mechanical failure have your life turned upside down and find yourself in a hotel, in a hospital in Monterey with people trying to decide, you know, what do you want, what should be done, what can be done, how much money do you have? They want to know how much money is in your bank account to figure out how much effort should be expended to try and save you. This doesn't exactly sound to me like the Hippocratic Oath in action. But even if you leave instructions that you do not want your life prolonged under certain circumstances, that can be meaningless, depending. Uh, it's just this very kind of murky area, even though the law may say that, yes, this is the instruction the person left, there's so many things that can happen. Uh, I mean, with the doctors and with the family and so on and so on. And it, yeah, it's uh, it's where the pedal meets the metal, metal. And the person involved is really that person is not even a factor anymore. You know, his wishes, his intentions, his it's now maybe mentally. Well, it's a very difficult question. I mean, you may recall in uh, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley's wonderful dystopia. Uh, people there are genetically engineered. They live to age 65 in the bodies of 25-year-olds, and then they die very suddenly. Well, now that's sort of a horrifying possibility, too. That's the other end of the spectrum. Just cut through all of this and, and avoid the class distinctions and the technological differences and appoint a human lifespan and say, you know, we will do everything in our power to make sure you live to be 70 years old and you'll be dancing on your 69th birthday and chasing young men all over the map and eating like a horse but come age 71, you will be dead, and we will make sure of it. That also freaks us out. So it's one of these places where, though we do everything through collective decision, you know, our politics, our economics, our art, everything is achieved by consensus. About this, we have no consensus. And, and yet every single one of us is moving toward this weird domain where this will not be abstract, this will be all that will matter. And what instructions should we, uh, you know, do we want carried out? Somewhat gloomy subject. I didn't really mean to wander this way. But um, I do love the science fiction of Greg Egan, this new Australian science fiction writer. And his novels tend to more cosmic themes, and, but his short stories are just one scenario after another of these medical 
near-term medical dilemmas that could involve uh, quite ordinary people. And this is all with easily extrapolatable medical technology that we see taking shape all around us. If you take the leap into more wild-eyed speculation, then you have the possibility of, um, and this is fully explored in Greg Egan's fiction as well, the possibility of digitizing human experience, actually uh, downloading consciousness out of bodies and into machines. Well, everybody says, well, that's a horrible idea. I wouldn't have that done to me. Well, would you if you were 24 hours away from death, if that were the option? If they were saying, you know, we're either going to pull the plug or we're going to download you and then pull the plug, check which box you would prefer. Uh, how many people would say, well, I don't know, I've always been skeptical about this download business, but hey, uh, at this point, why not? Well, then, but the strange thing is digitizing a digital existence is, may turn out to be an eternity of experience. Uh, we operate at a hundred hertz sitting here, a hundred cycles a second. That's about how the rate at which your body-mind system works. The PC sitting on the desk comes now, if it's a good one, with two 400 megahertz processors in it. What, what is that? 80,000 times more events can be packed by that computer into a second than uh, you can pack into a second. Uh, ten, uh, an hour inside that computer is like 80,000 hours outside the computer. So right at the brink of death, you can suddenly opt for a strange new kind of eternal existence. Not that different from being born. I mean, it involves a machine, of course, but maybe biological death will be something for Mennonites and the Amish and every, all the rest of us will opt for, of course, digital existence. And, but then, of course, you know, there have to be insurance policies to make sure your disk isn't erased and the electricity keeps running and nobody rewrites your code and nobody overwrites your code. And, uh, yes, I would have to be very careful. And then the question is, you know, whose obligation after a few hundred years Whose obligation is it to keep these digital ghosts alive? Uh, is it society's obligation after your fortune has long been run out and your relatives have forgotten you and you're still romping through the virtual fields of Elysium? Uh, who, of course, maybe there's, you can do useful work in there and be paid and deposit that salary into the account, which keeps the machine running, which keeps... It all comes down to money. Isn't that weird? Very interesting. I mean, it, it's, it's all money, you know? 
how much life you can buy, how many indulgences your tithing can procure for you. <laughs> it's all paying off somebody. As William Burroughs said, it's all some kind of a racket, which doesn't mean you want to throw down your cards and stomp off into the dark because it's the only racket in town. So you have to be very careful about rejecting. I wonder how many people... I mean, it seems to me these choices are now upon us. If we wait too long, if we think of it as science fiction, if we push it away from us, then those who didn't behave as we do will make it their business to make the decisions. Uh, this is all being put in place right now, all kinds of other stuff. I don't know how many of you read the New York Times today, but there was a, it was Science Tuesday, so there was a long article in the science section on uh, these things called SNPs, the portion of the DNA that we differ from each other in regarding. And this is where all the, all the uh, genetic diseases and hereditary conditions that limit our functionability reside and all that. Well, long before people are deciding whether they want to be digitized and downloaded into circuitry, genes are going to be bought and sold like CD-ROMs. You know, do you want them? Do you want, uh, do you, and, and what will be the moral arguments against them? You know, they are like prostheses of a non-mechanical sort, but do you want the gene that makes you immune to uh, liver cancer? Do you want the gene which prolongs sexual vitality? Do you want the gene which makes you uh, immune to the malarial organism? Such genes exist and can be easily manufactured by the millions and presumably implanted fairly easily. Well then, are we going to produce, as in Brave New World, you remember, everybody was slightly fey meaning gender expression had been kind of ameliorated. The women, everybody was bisexual, and everybody was photogenically perfect. Everybody had toned bodies, clear vision, quick reflexes, uh, because that was just the optimizing of the human form. Well, uh, to cling, to resist that, is that... It, to cling to your individuality, you know, your slightly crossed eyes, your vague stammer, your this and that. Is that some weird form of sentimentality? Or is it the last vestige of what makes you uniquely you? Do we want to become a society of uh, tennis coaches, essentially? Then <laughs> it becomes a question of freedom. What happens to well, yes, and who is going to tell somebody else, no, you may not have a breast implant or change your eye color or your gender or your intelligence or your preference for white wine over red? I mean, what are you saying? that the freedom of, of uh, 
I mean, I, I, I see with being able to pick every gene, you, you know, you, you could say I'm going to have a child and I want him to have an IQ of 180 and blue eyes and, blame, and, and all of that, well, that is really not freedom, in my view, because it's programming something. It, it's like... Well, it's that weird freedom that we're so fond of in this society. It's the freedom to choose. Uh, but it's not really a freedom if everyone decides to look like a tennis coach then what happened to f how is this freedom and how can we expect to get an einstein and an andy warhol and a william burroughs and a mick jagger and so forth out of a world where everybody is the same of course celebrity genes will be hugely popular and expensive i mean you know you can have jagger's lips you can have uh you know these so i, I don't i don't uh, fortunately we will each have to solve these problems only for ourselves but how the whole thing comes out what it comes out looking like i'm not sure I mean, if you go to Los Angeles, essentially this is a society that is testing the edge of this because there, you know, uh, breasts are routinely redesigned, so are faces, so are lips, so are bottoms. Uh, people tan themselves, tone themselves, halt their aging process, switch their gender, and my God, you wouldn't dare say a word against all this. You'd be denounced to some kind of recidivist reactionary, some kind of crypto-fascist of some sort, for sure. Uh, the problem is, I think, uh, that there is a hellish marriage between market values and human decision-making in our culture. I mean, we think you have freedom of choice if there are 11 brands of soap confronting you when you go to the, to the A&P. Well, is that real choice? Or is the real choice whether or not the A&P should exist? We, we confine ourselves in a, in a, uh, in a, neotenized environment of fetishized choice and the glamour of choice is driven by advertising uh, for instance uh, I was had this conversation with somebody in the last 24 hours one of the genes very likely to be quickly isolated and understood uh, is the gene for obesity well does that mean that, you know, in a hundred years, children will ask about a time when there were people walking around who didn't weigh a perfect 145 and have a, a, a perfect body? But we can't ask obese people to not avail themselves of this therapy if, if they feel psychologically imprisoned by their condition. Uh, how do we view obesity? Do we view it the same way we view nearsightedness uh, as a condition to be corrected by whatever means available? 
or is are we as a species somehow enriched by having very very obese people very short people very tall people uh, people uh, who are different from ourselves how how does how do we value difference and then when you move on into the mental domain uh, it just becomes unmanageable the price of understanding is power not the consequence as science seemed to believe you know if we understand this we will control it no if we will understand it we will have no choice but to attempt to control it with the sure knowledge that we will fail I mean that that is more the real implication maybe what it means is that human history can't be controlled by human beings that technologies have always uh, technologies and our flaws like greed like vanity have always made hellish marriages with each other and our best intent to be decent people to raise our children well to be present for our neighbors in times of pain and so forth and so on are are simply dragged along by the shadow and its obsessive relationship to the technologies which it produces you know McLuhan is famous for saying no technology in history has ever been put in place with even a partial understanding of what its consequences would be not the automobile not the printing press not the phonetic alphabet and certainly not biotechnology and uh, and computers and each one of these technologies has exalted and enriched the lives of a group of people and plunged other groups of people into hells previously unimagined i mean the printing press creates the whole notion of of literacy literature the uh, class of intelligentsia so forth and so on but it also creates propaganda advertising uh, the mechanisms that are used to support uh, uh, repressive forms of government and marketing so again and what I've said at various times in these talks is I can it's easy to sketch out dilemmas it's almost impossible to bring to offer reassuring closure Whitehead said it's the business of the future to be dangerous of course he said that in 1920 when it wasn't nearly as dangerous as it is now had he been staring down the barrel of atomic weapons gene therapy so forth and so on he might have felt differently uh, for sure there is no percentage in ignoring these issues or sweeping them under the rug or thinking it is not uh, it's not to germane to our lives we all live I mean I don't know what your life is like but I feel like I live far from the pinnacle of possibilities uh, 
I mean, I suppose if I were, you know, a professional in a science like brain surgery or, or implant design or something like that, that I would be at the edge. One of the things that is not clear to people is that most of what they know about the world is uh, randomly garnered information from uh, unreliable sources. Very few people professionally deal with information in such a way as that they try to find out what is actually going on and what the limits of possibility are. Uh, even in specialized fields of knowledge, like computer network design or research mathematics or gene sequencing or something like that, they don't communicate across the face of the wave of knowledge. And so people in a given field may feel the kind of vertiginous thrill of their field reaching levels of power and understanding that it's striven for for a long time, but they don't understand this is happening simultaneously in so many fields of knowledge that it's redefining the very nature of the enterprise of understanding and the very experience of being. I mean, a, a person who insisted on living as totally on the edge as they possibly could would be an object of discomfort for, for most of us, I think. I mean, I was at a conference a, a year or so ago in England that was sponsored by this thing in England called the ICA, which is a very pretentious kind of umbrella organization for contemporary artists. Well, I have a mild interest in contemporary art, have had for 30 years, but when I sat down with those people, I realized, you know, if you are not halfway through your gender switching operation, if you have not hung yourself by hooks from your pectorals in the sun, if you have not integrated machines into your body, if you, if you don't speak this language of deconstructionism and uh, crypto-sadomasochism and so forth and so on, nobody wants to talk to you. You have nothing to contribute to the dialogue at this point. The dialogue and art, we're told, is always the torchbearer at the edge of the human enterprise. Well, if that's what's going on among the torchbearers, then we all need to prepare ourselves for a nearly unimaginable future. Some of you may have read that essay a few years ago. I think it was in Atlantic Monthly by Norman Mailer about the future of psychosis. And he said, he, it was basically, he was reflecting on the Jeffrey Dahmer murder case. And he said, uh, you know, we must struggle to avoid a future where most of us keep human body parts in our refrigerators. Uh, and for us, this is like, you must be kidding. But, you know, I, I, I don't think so. I think the preservation of humanness and of human values in the presence of technology has been a battle that we have been losing so 
far because we weren't conscious of the rules and the parameters of the game, but that we should quickly awaken and realize, and I don't have any set of rules or an agenda, but this needs to be talked about. You know, what is a human being and how, therefore, once we figure that out or have a committee form an impression or something, once we decide what a human being is, how can we build societies which honor that? And right now we have a society that is completely dehumanizing. I mean, we are not people in the eyes of our society. In the eyes of our society, we are workers and customers. That's the only part that now matters to the overstructure. I mean, yes, you may go sit under a tree and write a poem or smell the roses, but you are not contributing. You know, you are you have to argue that you're contributing. What they really want you to do is why don't you go to work or why don't you relax and go shop? These two, <laughs> the, you know, you may shop, you may work. Uh, so we are defined economically, and we find that pretty horrifying. But wait until we are further restricted in the mass definitions that we reflect back upon ourselves. Uh, and places, you know, I mean, Esalen is known as the foundation of the human potential movement. Well, if there were ever an enemy poised at human potential, it's this. And by this, I don't mean technology, I don't mean computers, I don't mean gene therapy, I mean our unwillingness and inability to get hold of these things and make them serve a, a human agenda. You know, as every time we isolate a new physical principle or something like that, uh, the least among us rush forward with the question, how can we construe this into a military technology? In other words, how can we use this to kill people we disagree with? Well, this tells you that we, we have been perverted by our technologies and that our essential humanness has been severely uh, undermined. How to reclaim this? Well, probably beginning by talking about it. It's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. I mean, we tend to avert our gaze. We would rather be lulled into foolish and undeep visions of the future, visions of abundance or virtual hedonism or informational overload. And, but these are trivial and easily dealt with matters con contrasted with the basic question which hovers over us at this point in our uh, history, which is, what is it to be a human being and how much worth is there in it? And if there is worth in it, then how can we act uh, to preserve it? You know, there's a lot of hand-wringing and worrying about the extinction of species on this planet. 
And yes, you know, the gray parrot, the snail darter, the orangutan, they're all in great danger. But I've got news for you. None of them are as endangered as humanity is. And it's humanity that has its, its hand on the button. So it's a wake-up call, I think. Somebody asked me in the course of my being here, they said, uh, I, it's harder for me to take psychedelics than it used to be. Do you think it's because I'm getting old? And I said, no, I don't think it's because you're getting old. I think it's because the world you're living in is becoming more dangerous. And if psychedelics mean consciousness expansion, you cannot take them without encountering what you might superficially define as a bad trip, meaning you feel bad, you have strange images of alienation, of tormented flesh, of machine penetration of the human world, so forth and so on. This, this is not a bad trip. This is the last warning you may have before these things are set in adamantine. Who is going to pull our chestnuts out of the fire if it is not us? And who are we pulling these chestnuts out of the fire for if not for our children? And we do not want, I believe, our children to become unrecognizable to us. The continuity of life and being depends on there being uh, a shared continuum, uh, not only of flesh, but of uh, hope and love and a sense of value uh, projected onto nature and onto our uh, relationships. Well, that's the party, folks. I know it wasn't much fun. I hope it was interesting. It felt useful. Uh, but whoever it was who was marveling over my depth of humor and command of comedy earlier in the evening, you can now meditate on this talk. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you very much. One more meeting, and it will be Thursday night here. Well, people always come late. I don't mind people coming late. What I really hate is the fact that I always start on time. There's not much I can do about it. It was, you know, it was said of Immanuel Kant, you could set your clock by him on his morning walk, which is the most powerful argument against Kantian idealism I've ever heard. <laughs> Who cares what this guy thought? He had to stick up his ass. <laughs> of course, it was a, some time ago. Oh, details, details. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when did he live? Uh, sometime in the early 18th century, I think, middle 18th century, German idealism. He was preceded Schopen Schopenhauer and came after Hegel, is that right? 
in the absence of knowing whether that's right or not, I offer the factoid that Rudy Rucker is Hegel's great-grandson. A fact you learn from Rudy within 30 seconds of meeting him in most situations. What? Who is Rudy Rucker? <laughs> if, only, if only he were here to hear you ask the question. <laughs> Rudy Rucker is one of an expanding number of science fiction writers who are running harder than usual to stay in place, thanks to Greg Egan, who has raised the bar of science fiction um, higher than I thought it would rise before the close of the millennium. Uh, I don't know if I've directly pitched Greg Egan to you. I've mentioned him several times, but... If you, if you only bother to read one science fiction author a year, you might give this one a go. All of it's worthwhile. Permutation City is probably the most alarming and short-term uh, enlightening. Uh, it's basically set 20 or 30 years in the future and, and works out the implications of something which we've discussed here, which is the possibility that might flow from being able to upload or download, as the case may be, yourself into a machine as digital code. And basically what Permutation City is, is a museum of all possible plots that that might permit. You follow a number of people through a number of twists and turns. Well, this is the last of the staff-oriented evening get-togethers. Uh, I'm doing a, a weekend with uh, Mark Pesci this weekend um, for the public. I've arranged for you to gaze upon Mark this evening. There he is. How, how often do you get to see the true dimensions of a real giant? Uh, yes, and then after that's over with, I will go home Monday morning, sometime shortly after 9, flight UA-41 will pull up off runway 29er at SFO, go wheels up, bank sharply left, and I'll fly west with the sun at my back. So, um, in my cannabis-clouded memory, I can barely reach back to the dim beginnings uh, 13 days ago uh, to what we actually went over and over went in, uh, in these meetings. But I'm relying on you to correct that uh, problem. Um, is there, is there anything anybody has on their mind, either derivative of what has been said, or feel free, uh, don't be shy. This is your last crack at me, uh, uh, if I've arranged things the way I think I have. Yes, uh, I woke up this morning, and and replaced all my things with that. And how could you tell? Just something's wrong with it. You mean a slight existential discontinuity between you and reality? Well, I was just reading 
I can't remember who it was, but somebody was talking, oh, the guy who wrote that book, Virtual Reality, I think that's all it's called, the, not Rheingold, whose name begins with an H, is it I'm, M? Michael Heim. Yes, exactly. He mentions in there that after hours and hours in these simulated worlds, when you take off the goggles, uh, there seems to be a strange film over ordinary reality, uh, an existential distancing. Who knows, you know, maybe just the knife edge of paranoia, because what the VR immersion establishes for you is things are definitely not what they appear. Uh, I don't know why this is such a hard point to drive home. Uh, you don't have to be Immanuel Kant to figure out that nothing is what it appears to be. Uh, one of the strange things about modern dialogue about the crack-up of consensus culture is we all know nothing is what it appears to be. And yet, the most extraordinary claims and tales are granted uh, a veracity that we don't even extend to what we're hearing across the breakfast table. And by that I mean alien abductions, uh, melting ice caps, planetesimal bodies hurtling toward Earth, uh, the, we live in uh, a level of, uh, of rumor, anticipation, myth, projection, paranoia that not only makes bedrock hard to find, it seems to cast doubt on the very concept itself. Everything seems mutable. To me, this means we're living in a kind of alchemical universe where the momentum of positivist matter has been replaced by uh, by magical stuff which is part mind part matter part physics part dream and uh, we we make of this what we will i had a extremely minor epiphany this morning, more like a speed bump than an epiphany. But I was realizing, you know, one of the things that I bitch about in these meetings is this, what I called the, the balkanization of epistemology, meaning the breakdown of consensus reality. Uh, everybody believes whatever they want to believe. I in thinking about this this morning, I sort of glimpsed a different take on it, which is, you know, I, as well as many other people, have talked about how the only way out of the historical dilemma is back into some kind of atavistic tribal arrangement of society. I've called it the archaic revival McLuhan called it the global village, electronic feudalism, so forth and so on. It's been called many different things. But I, I realized in thinking about it this morning, this process, which I have preached, anticipated, delineated, uh, is the explanation for my own discomfort with the impossibility of achieving consensus. 
what's happening is uh, everything is tribalizing, meaning fragmenting. And there is no overarching uh, metaphor of unitary truth. Truth is basically now conferred by uh, numerical consensus. Uh, you know, heavens, I, I remember the weekend that the Heaven's Gate people made their exit. It was Easter weekend. And topic A in Christian America was how could people believe something so absurd? And people asked themselves this question as they uh, dressed for midnight mass and uh, prepared for Easter egg hunts. So I think, uh, you know, what is absurd and what is um, creditable seems to have become a matter of uh, democratic consensus, which is a very strange way to do intellectual business if you're out of an empirical tradition. Uh, however, it may be how, uh, how business is done in the future. I think this thing that I'm lamenting is, actually brands me as somewhat uh, retro. I think what I'm lamenting is the uh, the disappearance of the vanishing point. You know, the discovery of perspective in the Renaissance created uh, o over what had previously been a jumble of what I guess you would call psychologically weighted space was replaced with this idea of all... Uh, all points of view becoming tangential at a single point of view, which was the vanishing point. For us, it's hard to talk about this because we have um, integrated this into our worldview so thoroughly that we now believe it to actually be part of reality. It's very hard for us to imagine how the, excuse me, how the discovery of perspective could have been a breakthrough since it seems to us given by, uh, you know, our perceptual apparatus. Uh, McLuhan wrote an essay or one of his minor books called Through the Vanishing Point. And the point that he was making there was that the, the, the new electronic media, and for McLuhan that didn't even mean virtual reality or the Internet, and for him, it meant television, movies, radio, the electric light, so forth and so on. But that all these forms of media propelled us through the vanishing point and into this electronically tribalized world of relativistic values where those who shout the loudest garner the largest headlines and people believe whatever they want and experience a state of high dudgeon if you suggest that this is not a reasonable way to build um, a worldview. Uh, but so, nevertheless, this is where we're going. This is where we are, actually. We are in this place. The future has arrived. The question is, have you arrived? Have you arrived? Have you arrived? Have I arrived? The future is here in the sense 
of um, a mysterious dimension of infinite depth that as it is learned it changes uh, the person who is doing the learning. And for example, I could spend all my time, every waking minute of my time, doing nothing but learning software and implementing various tools. Uh, I don't do that. Nobody does that. But to the degree that I am incompetent in a world where tools that would confer competency exist, my inadequacy is self-chosen. And I, I talk about all these things uh, with more passion here than in most places, because at times I've seen Nesselin as uh, somewhat retro, in that it had a resistance to uh, technology. And at other times I've seen it as a kind of island of sanity and all of that, because what it has throughout its history, and I'm now talking about Esalen, attempted to celebrate and make cogent is the body. <clears throat> I mean, if there is no longer uh, uh, a vanishing point that finds its nexus in the abstract idea of the coordinating eye, there is still, though for how much longer who can say, a kind of nexus of coordination in the body. And Whitehead made this point presciently clear back in the 30s in, uh, in uh, process and reality. Uh, is this the answer to a question, or am I now giving the evening lecture uh, <laughs> nodding yes? doesn't tell me which it is. <laughs> this is the lecture. I'd rather answer a question. Is there one? Or an observation? I mean, how do you people relate to this? You are Californians, which means you have more feet in the technical domain than most people. But you are, uh, except for those of you who snuck in under some special dictum or decree, a staff. Here and so, uh, you know, how do you do you feel these contradictions as poignantly as I do, or are you so one or the other that you don't even feel yourself uh, on the horns of a dilemma? I uh, uh, well, you want to take a crack at that? <laughs> the whole question again. Well, how, how poignantly do people feel the dilemma between the obvious decorporealization of the body through electronic culture and the effort on the part of the many schools of, of human potential psychology that have grown up here to make the body the, the bottom line and the final arbiter of value? That's what I'm asking. I don't see any reason not to immerse ourselves in both. I mean, I feel like I use communication technology to serve me as far as my my hunger for information or to use the various facilities that it offers. But I still make my business to be involved in with bodies. 
And at the interface between technology and body, there is something called the mind, uh, which has been modeled variously throughout history and with greater uh, intensity and variety in the 20th century. Do you, do you image yourself clearly and unambiguously when you think of yourself as a mind? And do you coextensively map the idea of mind to the idea of conscious ego, or is it more complicated than that? Well, in other words, we know Freud had a notion of how the personality was constructed. Jung brought another vocabulary to bear. Are these meaningful vocabularies? Is there still a place for the id, the superego, the collective unconscious? Uh, Reichian notions of body armoring. Uh, we know that gender definition is flying apart. We know that uh, multiple personality, maybe, maybe not disorder, is on the rise. How do all these symptoms of a shifting set of body-mind definitions parse with your own feeling about who you are and what you're doing? Or does, am I the only one who walks around scratching my head about this uh, all the time? It may be my extreme alienation, yeah. What I find interesting is, um, is where uh, <laughs> what was once our mind has been incorporated in what I experienced is now extended to, like, my boundaries have become much greater. So part of me because it's my memory, even the notepad that I have. That I find an interesting concept. You mean that part of what was conventionally held in biology, although we don't want to get into a discussion of where memories really are, but let's assume conventionally they were part of the body-mind system, they now there's a technological cheat in the loop, and it binds time, and the effect of binding time is to dissolve boundaries. And are you comfortable with that? Right. I, I think it's not much. It's not much articulated here. Uh, probably because you know this is this is uh, on a Greek metaphor. This is a, a kind of Sparta. You know, we're forever exercising in the nude and putting mud on ourselves and glorifying the body. But, you know, I suppose we could then say Cupertino is a horrifyingly distorted version of Athens, where, uh, you know, Platonists hold sway, moving effortlessly in cast mental castles of their own construction. Uh, the Greek solution to this dilemma was constant warfare and political struggle between these two uh, points of view. I'm not suggesting that we polish up our broadswords and march on Los Gatos with blood in our eye. Uh, uh, in fact, I don't advocate anything at all. I just feel more and more uh, intensely uh, the the um, the poles of the dilemma, and as I talk to people, I realize this is this is more and more people's dilemma. They couch it in different terms. They deal with it on different levels of sophistication. 
people, you know, who can talk for an hour uh, with serious Luddite arguments against high technology, when closely questioned, turn out to have failed touch typing. And that's the real foundation of their uh, of their technophobia. Not all these high flown excuses which are are being pushed. Uh, on the other hand, people who uh, who glorify the physical, if they are professional, in the sense of athletes or teachers or doctors of great reputation find themselves more and more dependent on technical prosthesis to convey their message. I mean, we are the most sport-loving society perhaps ever in history, certainly in hundreds and hundreds of years. But for most of us, what that means is we watch televised sporting events. We watch Wimbledon. We watch the Olympics. We watch uh, um, the Grand Prix. Vicarious physicality, if you indulge in it, gives you very little philosophical room to rail against virtual reality. Six to eight hours, four days a week, massaging people. Six to twelve hours a week, yoga, yoga, dancing people. And then I go home to a computer. And sometimes, I don't want to wrap my brain around a computer after that. You know, I've been in a certain vibe all day. And to take what to do what it takes to get into the computer is not something I want to do. And then other times, I'm perfectly willing to sit down and spend several hours. So I, I wouldn't want to have all of either. Is what I've discovered. What do you think makes the difference in your attitude? Well, sometimes just the amount of physicality, you know, I have, if I, for eight to ten hours, really been being physical, I don't want to go do anything else. I wouldn't want to do more physical work either. Drugs are good. <laughs> I mean, I mean, to the point of the six-pack uh, of beer, we're taught, you know, whatever your drugs are, whatever floats your boat, yeah, well, I I live. I don't. I'm not a masseuse. I don't do that. But I do live in a place startlingly remote and wild. That is 15 seconds walk from my one megabyte connection. So I can be surfing the internet and within 30 seconds walk away from it and be in a in a Hawaiian rainforest. I find that extremely uh, um, liberating and and but I can imagine you know uh, I have neighbors who think I'm crazy for one half of the equation or the other you know they may differ uh, am I living paradox or am I um, melding contradiction into a coincidentia oppositorum, an alchemical union of opposites. That's what I would like to believe. Mark and I were talking today about 
the weird fact that a given era articulates a given ideal. For instance, the Renaissance magical hermeticists articulated a magical ideal that couldn't possibly be realized until their epistemological naivete was swept away by modern science. Then modern science could create longevity, uh, vision at a distance, near telepathy, uh, prosthesis, extension of memory, so forth and so on. But in the act of creating it, it undercut the spiritual impulse for it. All these things, once achieved from the spiritual point of view, had a kind of ersatz quality. They're not quite real. And some of you may have experienced, as I have, uh, you'll read a description of some marvelous material that confounds reality, like aerogels or something, you know, slightly denser than smoke, nearly weightless, can be milled like metal, so forth and so on. Sounds fascinating. Well, then when you somebody hands you a cubic foot of aerogel, within 30 seconds you have completely assimilated what it is as an object in the world and you see oh yes it is everything i was told it is and yet somehow the most the thing which excited me about imagining its existence has now been stripped from it by the act of confronting it most things are like that i guess what i'm saying there is uh, you know, who was it who said, we don't sell bacon, we sell the sizzle. Uh, but, but bacon is sustenance, sizzle is, uh, is flash. The only thing I found, uh, well, no, two things seem to exceed this equation. One is sex, and I hope I don't have to preach the merits of that to you. And the other is psychedelic drugs. And these two things seem weirder than advertised, more, <laughs> m more interesting than advertised. And God knows, both are being constantly advertised at high volume all the time in very flashy terms. And yet each exceeds the marketer's ability to, uh, to interest you in them. That, that's interesting. Death may be the third one, but I did death the other night. I think we'll, one of those is enough. Well, how do any of the rest of you feel about all of this? Do you come here to this evening to be with people who think like you do, or do you come uh, to see how weird the tech heads are uh, in, as they parade their strange conceptions before you. I don't know, because I, I don't grill you on where you come from this organization. Well, yeah, I think that's how most people operate with it. Most people have uh, almost, you know, Ward Cleaver type values and worlds that they move in very comfortably cyberspace gene therapy virtual reality nanotechnology interstellar travel life extension 
these things enliven the experience of reading the newspaper, but they don't come tangential uh, to most people's lives. On the other hand, you know, some people, the technical community that's creating these things, the the cadres of media people who must understand and re-explain this stuff back to uh, the general public, they breathe and eat this stuff. Uh, and and some people, like myself, I guess, are ambivalent go-betweens between it. Uh, what's, you know, human beings have always existed sociologically and aesthetically and conventionally over a much broader spectrum of behaviors and attitudes than any other species we're familiar with. But that difference has undergone like a hyperinflationary explosion in the last 15 years, uh, largely because well, no, there are so many reasons, you know, gender redefinition, the rise of the internet, the emergence of the super rich, the emergence of the super poor, the emergence of the totally wired, the emergence of the totally disconnected, and also the awareness that uh, the, the growing sophistication of propaganda, which makes all honest efforts to establish a level playing field of discourse easily subverted. I mean, every time you think you're having an honest discussion or making an honest dis appraisal of a situation, if you pull back one level, you discover you're, you're embedded in other people's agendas and other people's and institutions' styles of manipulating reality. Um, I mentioned to you Eric Davis's book. Uh, it hasn't come out yet, Technosis. When it does come out, I urge you to read it for all kinds of reasons. Uh, the one I would mention here is that it showed me that everyone, including myself, and that was the big shock for me, is a creature of their time and that it's very hard not to serve invisible agendas where you know you you don't realize that you think the way you think for reasons entirely divorced from who you are where you are and what's good for you for example you know in the middle ages Christian piety permeated every level of society and every act and every thought, even of the critics of Christian piety. It wasn't that there were people who stood apart from it. If you defined yourself by attacking it, you nevertheless were defined by it. I think I mentioned recently or somewhere or sometime that back when I was a student at Berkeley, once during a riot, people dropped a banner off the third floor dorm balcony that said, uh, it was a quote from Jean-Paul Sartre, we cannot transcend Marxism until we transcend the conditions that have created it. And 
in a way, uh, we cannot transcend the social, political, and philosophical reality that we are now very uncomfortably situated in until we transcend the conditions that create it. But we are those conditions. The momentum of our ideologies is the main thing holding together the illusion of any coherency at all. I mean, the people who are really with it are really difficult to understand. And their, their effort to communicate is, is uh, maddeningly unsuccessful, I think, for them and for us. The, the balkanization of discourse, the proliferation of special vocabularies, the generation of uh, unstated professional assumptions, the we-all-know kind of sense of reality out of which then statements can be made, uh, tends to island discourse. And yet, if discourse is islanded, community becomes nearly uh, impossible. Well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. It seems to me, you know, the conclusions that we've drawn from the uh, these meetings that we've had, which themselves have been plagued by this kind of fragmentation and dissipation. I mean, people have Feldenkrais things to do. They have processing to do. They have to meet their connection. They have something else to do that busts up their loyalty to even the idea of six consecutive meetings on the subject of chaos. Um, uh, <clears throat> we're yes, no, we're living it. But, uh, you know, the important thing is to realize that you're living it and that that's what it is, you know. What I, my what I come away from all this with is that looking at the future, much of which is already in place, I mean, don't imagine that, uh, you know, the, the world will look greatly different in five or ten years. It may look slightly different. This world we're living in, the world of 1998, to the camera's eye, is indistinguishable from the world of 1990. And yet, you know, the most elaborate and sophisticated technical artifact in the history of mankind has been put in place in those eight years, the rise of the Internet. But, you know, who runs into it? Who stumbles over it? Who sees it? It's odorless, tasteless, uh, invisible. We all had computers in 1990. It's simply that they were large paperweights. Now they have become telepathic creatures. Mm -hmm. And while we natter over the implications of all of this, they freely converse with each other in a planetary-wide environment and evolve themselves toward, uh, you know, whatever destiny lies in wait for the machine logos uh, that, that we have pulled into existence. So... This future, which is already here, has implications that not that few of us have fully grokked 
worked, I think, and I, I listed three of them just to as a crib to help me through this. First of all, that there is no closure. All ideology is now exposed as an adolescent response to being. You know, we if the 20th century taught us anything, it taught us the toxic nature of ideology. The excesses of the left led to the Holocaust. The excesses of the right led to um, the, the pogroms and mass trials of Stalinist Russia, the excesses of the Cultural Revolution in China, the suppression of uh, dissent, uh, 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 in many parts of the world. So uh, there, there is a need to abandon ideology, which is really a postmodern position, and it's very uncomfortable. The absence of closure is a post-juvenile stance toward being that few people in the past ever lived long enough to grow comfortable with. You know, if you died at age 40, culture as a con game lasts long enough to keep you entranced up until sometime in midlife. If you live beyond midlife and you still are fascinated and entranced by culture, chances are you're an idiot of some sort. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean is this not obvious, you know? I mean, after the... Uh, so this, this is why, I mean, marketing has shrewdly understood this. This is why we are folded back toward the idolization of youth, because it's an idolization of cluelessness. Uh, you know, it's not the firm body and the quick step that the marketers are interested to sell you. It's innocence. But I innocence are people you love to play poker with if you are uh, sufficiently cynical. And believe me, the, the market forces are sufficiently cynical. So uh, assimilating to the future means living not with no ideology whatsoever or with uh, and people say, well, can one live without ideologies? Isn't the belief we should, uh, um, you know, strive for peace and justice and ideology? I don't think so. I think these are provisional models of behaviors that derive from immediate practical concerns that can be revised in real time, constantly held up to the incoming flow of data and adjusted. That's why the concept model is so much, you know, if Lenin had said he had a model, if Hitler had said he had a model, I think it would have played out with a little more soft conclusions than to say, you know, a new truth is proclaimed and the behaviors which derive from it are uh, incontrovertible. So no no ideological closure. And I don't know how you feel about this. I'm very comfortable with it. I, I was passionate about ideology in my youth. I've had most of them. 
you know. <laughs> at, at 11, I was reading Mein Kampf and Festung Europa sound like a very good idea. I loved all that pseudo-Egyptian um, overscale tasteless architecture and all that stuff folk dancing and uh, summer camping sounded attractive. At 17, I was a Marxist, you know, ready to go to the barricades for the workers' state. At 22, we marched under the black flag of anarchy, used to bust up meetings of Trotskyites and write graffiti on their front doors and make life hell for those people. Now I don't give a shit. And I feel much better about it, to thank you. Uh, I mean, I think we should try strive for a sane and caring world that gives as many people as much choice to express themselves as possible. Beyond that, I don't feel any kind of an imperative. Uh, going along with this idea of living without uh, uh, ideology, is the idea that there is no longer any consensus reality. And this one is imp maybe more important to me than to you because as an intellectual with a, an agenda, an idea, a revelation, at times in my career it seemed to me that what I was supposed to do was convert everyone to my viewpoint. Of course, this is preposterous. Very few people are able to do that. No one is ever able to entirely succeed with that. Now I see that we all live in our own private Idaho, and, the, and all you can really do is ride the range and mend the fences, but you're not going to push the ranch out to uh, both coastlines. Uh, so and then how to view other people's realities. Well, I view it as private property, not to be violated by me. I'm a trespasser. If I go and sit with those who are visited by pro bono proctologists from nearby star systems, I feel I'm <laughs> violating, I'm trespassing on someone else's turf. Uh, when I'm in the presence of people who insist on soy protein uh, with every meal, I feel, you know, I'm trespassing on someone else's turf. I'm an invited guest. I'm, I behave myself, and then I go home and scratch my head about the neighbors and what they're into. <laughs> You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And my guess is that Terence is right on the money uh, there where he says that ultimately we are all living in our own private Idaho. I know that it isn't all that uh, popular to talk and think about the fact that even though we may be living among people that we love, uh, well, when you wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep... There is really no question about the fact that, ultimately, you are all alone in this world. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not important to have and to be with friends. It just means that the sooner you realize that you need to be your own best friend, well, then the smoother your emotional life is going to be. 
I know that this isn't uh, exactly coming out the way I mean it to, <laughs> but I hope that you catch my drift. So, uh, what do you think about Terence's position on ideologies? Personally, I agree with him. The one that I was most steeped in as a child was Christianity. But when I learned that the troubles in Ireland, while actually political in nature, were fueled by the conflict between two branches of Christianity, Protestantism and Catholicism, well, I began to question the tall tales that were being forced into my young mind at the time. The basic spiritual beliefs of these two Christian denominations were much the same. Nonetheless, they've been warring over the details for centuries. And while I know very little about it, from what I've read, the split between the two major sects of Islam seems to me to be of a similar nature. So I finally came to the conclusion that I don't want anything to do with the ideologies of any of the human religions. And, by the way, did you know that there are over 4,000 different religions yet today? And that's not even counting the, <laughs> the Universal Worldwide Church of Cash, which uh, seems to have a grip on many minds right now. So, how do we live without ideology? Well, I've found my own way, and my guess is that, well, you're going to have to do the same for yourself. Because if I were to outline my way of living, living without any formal ideology... Well, it seems to me that I would then be creating yet another one for people to follow. On the wall here in my office is a drawing that my grand did in her third grade art appreciation class. They were studying Picasso and, well, her interpretation of his style I found to be worth framing. Of course, us grandparents think that all of our grandchildren's art should be framed. But this one of hers is particularly well done. And at the bottom of her drawing, she wrote go your own way. I sure hope that she remembers that as her life progresses, and I hope that she can pass that good advice on to her own descendants one day. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.